Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. All right, so this is the seventh episode? Yes, this is episode seven. Cool. So this is Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. I'm Juliet. And we're here to talk about horror movies. We're two femme-presenting people here to talk about horror movies. And today we're going to talk about, you know, we kind of teased this last time in two different ways in that, you know, we said this episode was a long time coming. And last episode we talked briefly about a movie that sort of inspired this podcast. And I would say that without realizing it, this movie four years ago paved the way for this podcast. I think you're totally right. I guess you're like blowing my mind with this right now because I didn't ever think of it like this, but this probably, what is that called? Subconsciously? Yeah. Subconsciously. Yeah, because especially the reception on this, we're talking about Midsummer. Yeah. Do we owe Ari Aster royalties now? Yikes. Yep. <laughs> yep, I think so. But we also should be getting credit. Yeah. We should get some credit. I think so. All the credit. <laughs> I mean, partially this movie and also partially Hereditary. I don't know about you, but I remember leaving the theater after seeing Hereditary, which we're not talking about today, but maybe another time. However, I remember leaving the theater thinking, holy cow, Ari Aster is a person where we absolutely are going to have to keep watching. I don't think I've ever felt so... I don't want to say confused because I wasn't confused, but like off kilter. Like, I don't know how to sit with all of the feelings that I'm feeling right now. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, You know, Hereditary was such an interesting theatrical experience. And I do think it's important to point that out, although we're not going to do deep dive into Hereditary. Um, It is important to point it out because a lot of what I experienced seeing Hereditary in the theater set me up for the experience of seeing Midsummer for better or worse in the theater the first time, which was, I'll just admit it straight up, was not a good theatrical experience. Um, When we saw this in 2018 in the theater, um, I think I've changed my mind on the movie, which is great. But I went into Midsummer really appreciating Hereditary, but also being really cognizant that I didn't want to see Ari Aster do the same thing that he had done in Hereditary. I was very much like, wow, that's an excellent first horror film, but it's also a trap that a director could fall in. Like he could very much repeat kind of the same thing over and over again without enough variation on this theme. And it could get really tired really quickly. So I was certainly cognizant of that going in. I was also cognizant of the sort of shock slash plot twist in Hereditary. Um, And he got me with Midsummer in a completely different way um, that ended up actually being detrimental to my viewing experience. But I was very cognizant of that. Like, oh, is he going to do that again? And if he does, is that going to be good or bad or whatever? Um, So yeah, Hereditary definitely factored into my perception going into this one the first time around. 
Yeah, I also had something similar where I had a certain expectation going in post-hereditary, which I really liked, although I was very disoriented after the movie. Yeah. I really did enjoy it. I thought it was really great. And so I'm thinking, um, which I misspoke, this actually came out in the summer of 2019. So Oh, okay. So it's only been two and a half years. But, but it feels like a thousand years. <laughs> yeah, this is two and a half years in pandemic time, aka 14 years of real time. <laughs> it was summer of 19? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That really explains. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Lots of, lots of. Okay. Yeah. Context. Lots of stuff happening. Context. It was the okay. 3rd of July. So just two oh, months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, Jeez. yeah. Um. So to put it in context, you were already pretty, pretty raw at that point. <laughs> Maybe yeah, not ready for this movie. Definitely not. But now we're pandemic veterans, so you're ready for anything. Like it's nothing, true. you've you're made of Teflon now. Nothing can touch you. Yeah, you're made of absolute vibranium at this point. <laughs> so, um, we saw this together back in 2019 in the summer, and I remember immediately after leaving the theater, everybody that we saw it with, which it was a pretty good contingency of people. Yeah. Not a single person came out like, wow, I really like that movie. Everybody was like, wow, that stunk. Like, I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I know that I talked to Juliet about this multiple times after we saw it initially. I was looking up articles online. (laughs) I was asking everybody that watched this movie, why did you love it? I want to know. I'm desperate to know. Because I'm always up for a devil's advocate. I want to know, if you like a movie... Tell me why you like that movie. Because if I had such a visceral reaction to the opposite of it, tell me why you didn't. I would love to know. And maybe it's not going to change my mind, but maybe then I'll be like, okay, well, maybe I didn't have this experience. So that's why I couldn't relate to the characters. Or maybe I missed out on something crucial because sometimes that happens. You have to get up to pee and then you miss out. Sometimes that happens. So (laughs) I was really desperate to know why I was missing out on this movie. Especially because I loved the uh, Hereditary so much. Absolutely. And you could tell, like, the pieces were there. And I thought that perhaps this was what I had feared, which was a failure of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a beautiful film, straight up. Like, I even said that back then. Like, wow, visually, it's beautiful. He is so competent with his shots. Oh, yeah. With choosing the location. His use of color is amazing. Um, the score. I love the score. I have been playing the score on one of my radio shows pretty consistently since it came out. But the story itself, I just, I couldn't engage with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, I kind of knew why. I mean, I was mad. <laughs> I yeah. Was straight up mad um, when we first saw this. Like, I, I was almost, and I have never, is that right? Yeah, I think that I think that's accurate that I have never walked out of a movie in the theater. There are, there are a couple that I can name like a few that I've almost walked out of and didn't, all for very specific reasons, and this was actually one of them. But I was able to recognize that pretty straight away and then afterwards I was doing exactly the same thing as you. Like I had quite a few friends that just loved it. I was like, "Why?" Like please help me figure this out. Like even knowing that my reaction to the beginning was what it was. And I'll, I'll get into the reasons for that more here in a little bit, but like, why did you love this? And I've just been wondering, and this is, you've watched it at least a couple times mm-hmm. now. Yep. This, this is my third watch through. So okay. watched it with, with you in the theater. I watched it one other time 
early beginning of the pandemic watch through because it was on Prime for a while. Mm -hmm. The director's cut was on Prime and then just now with you. So this is my third time. And you you talked me into it because when you told me during at the beginning of the pandemic that you had watched it again and you were starting to change your mind, I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, I so I wanted to do it for Valentine's Day for a snarky reason because <laughs> I mean the, it's a good snarky reason. <laughs> the true terror of this movie is insidiously crappy boyfriends. Yes, right. Absolutely. That, that is the like the, you know you you always talk about the true terror of a movie. The true terror of this movie is that bad boyfriends are bad. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> terrible bad. So. I wanted to do that for that reason. Like, that's why I, I was like, we should do that for Valentine's Day and Juliet's like, yes, let's do it. Mm-hmm. But also because I had such a different watching experience the second time I watched this movie versus the first time. And I was like, Juliet, I think that you should watch it again. Like, we were going through some stuff yeah. in the summer of 2019. Daytonian listeners, you'll understand and Juliet was very close to all the things that was happening. It was tough. Yeah, it was it was tough. Well, and um so I guess let's just kind of dive into the the very very beginning. Um and I will just say in addition to everything that was going on when the movie came out, um you know, I'll just reiterate, you know, our content warnings at the top of the podcast. This this movie starts straight out with a very visceral depiction of suicide and murder suicide. And the whole framing of it, like before they even got to the really, really visceral part, it became very personal very quickly because there were discussions of bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a friend who had bipolar disorder and died by suicide. So even hearing the sort of conversations surrounding someone with bipolar disorder and like, are they just acting out? Are they doing it for attention? Oh, they're always doing something was on the one hand, like really relatable, but too relatable mm-hmm. in a in a lot of respects. And that is where and I, I've said this is going to be coming for a while. Like, I really wish I would have known that going in. Sure to this movie because watching it a second time knowing it was coming there was still there are still a couple of shots that just like with antlers i'm like it didn't need to be in there to get the Mm -hmm. point across but that said like knowing okay we're going into a movie where the setup for this character's journey is that somebody very close to her died by suicide like okay all right i'm i'm fine with it now but see oh seeing it with no warning just hit me in all the wrong places it was not um it was not scary it was not shocking in an entertaining way it was just really painful yeah yeah it was definitely a tender like um a moment that is very private and tender and like not tender and like touching in a touching way but like tender in a like wow that still really hurts no matter how much time and space and events have happened in between now and then just in a way that is just going to gut punch you, especially if you've had um, experience with something like that. Yeah, and to open a movie like that, too, is yes. extra rough. Like, it's it's a little different when, when something like that happens, like, midway through a movie, and you've had enough foreshadowing to, to sort of reckon with the fact, like, 
okay, I see where this is going. You've led me down that path. You've prepared me a little bit as a viewer, but to jump right in, like, this right. was all pre-credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lot. Yeah, definitely. It's it's very stark. It's very bleak. It doesn't flinch. You're just kind of, you just have to sit there while it happens to yeah. you. It's tough. It's a movie that almost happens backwards. That's sort of like irreversible. You have this really terrible, awful, raw thing that happens, and then everything kind of unravels after that. So just to kind of summarize, Midsummer is about Danny, played by Florence Pugh, one of the first things I ever saw her in. Yeah, um, same. So really exciting, extremely good performance by her. Her sister, who is bipolar, has sent her a bunch of emails. She ends up committing suicide and killing both of Danny's parents at the same time. She has no family after that. And we're introduced to her boyfriend. I keep saying Christian, but they kind of pronounce it like Christian. I think Christian is the Americanized version. And every time we're hearing it as Christian, it's somebody who is not a native English speaker saying it. Well, that makes sense then. Um, played by Jack Rayner. He is the insidiously bad boyfriend that I so <laughs> refer <very> to. <laughs> so right before the news breaks of the murder-suicide, he's getting ready to break up with her. He's talking with all of his friends. They're basically encouraging him, egging him on. You need to break up with her. She's only dragging you down. And he's like, well, what if I break up with her and I change my mind? And I want to go back. Like, very icky discussion. But then we have his three friends, Pele, who's played by Wilhelm Blomgren. Sorry if I butchered that name. It's Swedish. William Jackson Harper, who's Josh, and Will Poulter, who plays Mark. So that's your kind of main cast of characters. And essentially, Danny's very fragile state after the death of her entire family, essentially, makes it so that he feels guilty and he can't break up with her. And then he at a party, he's like, oh, well, I'm getting ready to go to Sweden for a month and a half in two weeks. And he guilt invites her and she goes to Sweden to observe this uh, midsummer ceremony in Pele's hometown, which is kind of like a commune. I don't want to say cult because it's not really a cult because this is like a very old kind of community. And I, I feel like cult kind of seems like it's a more recent thing. But they said that they've been doing this for, like, generations, so... Yeah, I think we have to think about the usage of the word cult in that regard. Because, like, it's kind of the same thing when I tell people, like, oh, I studied ancient Greek mystery cults in college. You know, everyone's like, ooh, you know, and it's like, no, that it's not what you think it means. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is, but it mostly isn't. Yeah. You know? It's just more, in that case, refers to... Uh, a group of people who perform rituals around a certain intention or figure yeah. or holiday or place or whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean nefarious stuff. And I would argue in this case, whether or not this particular group is doing nefarious activity really depends on your perspective. Yeah. Which is one of the interesting challenges of this movie. Definitely. When I'm referencing this whole insidiously bad boyfriend thing, this is a, a thread through the movie that we're going to be talking about that the first time I watched this movie, I was totally not really watching for. Yeah, same. And 
I think that's why nobody could explain to me why they love this movie so much and why no matter how many articles I read, it took me waiting a little while and then going back and rewatching the movie to actually really get it. Because how do you explain to someone that the reason why this movie ends up being so relatable and so, like, satisfying is because the main guy in this movie, the boyfriend of our main character, is not bad, like, he outrightly hurts her or is abusive, um, at least not physically abusive, but that he is terrible in a way that is very common yeah, for boyfriends, because I think that it would require a lot of, like, self-reflection, and y'all aren't ready for that, <laughs> you know? Like, I, I think that's yeah. why it's so, it's it was so hard to have somebody explain to me why this movie is so bad. And also, it's been two and a half years, and there's a little bit more experience. I think women are a little bit more aware, uh, just culturally, we're more aware of it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to be upset about something. You're allowed to feel the feelings that you feel. You don't have to be gaslit into, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think that's why it's it's a movie that's so hard to, if somebody doesn't get it, to explain why it's good. Yeah, because you kind of have to apply your own past and experiences to your experience of this film. And so to explain it to someone is to have to, you know, depending on how close you are to the person to have to explain your entire life story and experience to them and or to have to relate it to their entire life experience. It's it's a tricky film in yeah. that way. Totally. So Danny is in a very classic abuse cycle. And it's a hard movie to talk about because it's not like an objective thing where like this event happens and then this event happens and it makes you feel this way and then everybody feels the same way about it. It's really not that type of a film. It's way more subjective. But at the beginning of the movie, Danny is in this very classic abuse cycle where she states a valid opinion or says, I am feeling this way. And then Christian backs off way like hard, like, they're in her apartment. She's like, I, you know, I was really surprised that you said that you were going to Sweden and you're doing it in two weeks and you didn't tell me. And then he's like, well, I did tell you that I wanted to go to Sweden. She's like, you didn't tell me you were going, though. The language there is really important. The, keep in mind, this is very, very, very shortly after Danny's entire family has died by her sister's hand. She's still super raw about it. There's several scenes where you can tell she's still, like, very much in her own head. The world around her is still very clouded and foggy. And he's just like, oh, well, I'll just go. So then immediately she takes 15 steps back. She's like, no, 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 no. I wasn't accusing you of anything. I'm not mad at you. I'm sorry. And it's a very classic abuse cycle where one person says, this is a boundary I'm setting. I'm allowed to vocalize this particular feeling. And then the aggressor even in this case, a passive aggressor, immediately withdraws all attention and affection so that the person who is asserting that feeling or vocalizing it has to immediately withdraw and say, no, I will do anything to keep you here with me because I can't stand to be alone. Well, yeah. And you have that 
alongside the fact that this is a person who is very much grieving. Oh, yeah. And her grief is often used as a tool by him to either gaslight her or sort of explain away his behavior or her feelings. And it's like really gross in that way. And the other thing is like, this is also somebody who in addition to being an abuser and being like a very passive aggressive gaslighty partner has like zero emotional intelligence like not just in terms of his relationship with her but his his relationship with every person at some point in this movie we see just a complete lack of like awareness of other people's feelings and a lack of awareness of his own feelings too which we'll get into as we get further in the film like there's a very specific scene where you can see like his body and his mind almost disconnecting because he just does not know how to handle feelings at all, which is unfortunately so typical of so many people these days. Yeah. He's two dimensional in a way that is really relatable. Yeah. (laughs) Like I think we all know and it, unfortunately tends to be cis men who are less in touch with feelings, um, especially intense emotions, and are unable to communicate effectively or empathize or sympathize effectively with people who are experiencing extreme emotions like grief or panic or disgust, you know, the really extreme emotions. So I'm glad that you brought that up. He is not a person who is able to say, I accept what you are feeling and sympathize with you, although I cannot feel that myself right now. Yeah, his his privilege allows him to be just completely absent of, of anything. And we see little hints throughout where all of a sudden he's in situations where his privilege of being a cis, white, able bodied, attractive man falls short all of a sudden and he is completely lost. Like he just does not know. He is not equipped with the skills to deal with anything when his privileges are starting to be stripped away. Yeah. (laughs) This movie, it's not necessarily hard for me to talk about, but it leaves you with this like very complex, satisfying feeling where you're like, how can I even vocalize this? And I'm gonna try, but it's, it's tough as, (laughs) as we're going along, I'm just like, how do I feel the things that I feel right now? (laughs) How do I process them? (laughs) So one of the things like you touched on, he is not a good friend. He's not a good boy. He's a terrible boyfriend. Yeah. But he is also not a good friend to his friends. No. Mark and Josh are his friends from college. Pele is the, um, the guy from Sweden and he's the reason why they're going back to Sweden. But Josh, when they're at the bar, he's asking these tough questions that are almost like kind of meta. There's a part where he's like, are you sure that you're not using this masochistic experience to hide the fact that you have work that you need to do on yourself? And he's like, what work are you talking about? (laughs) Christian says that. And I'm like, this seems like foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, Because he almost says it offhand. And they're just like, you're a psych major. Of course, you would say something like that. And I think that Josh maybe gets, uh, there's a little bit of punishment involved later for him saying that offhand, which comes in in like two thirds of the way in the movie. So I won't spoil that just now, but it definitely seems like that. 
The other thing about uh, doors and mirrors. and um, So there's like portals all over the place in this movie. We have mirrors showing a reflection of Christian, mostly only Christian. Yeah, almost always. He's at least in all of the mirrors. Well, two exceptions. Danny is in the mirror with him one time, and then Danny looks into the mirror herself when she's tripping on mushrooms right after they get to the um, get to the village, when she goes to the bathroom. I'm really interested, and I wonder if the whole, like, him being two-dimensional factors into the reason why he is shown often in the mirror, like in a mirror's reflection. The fact that he doesn't have a third dimension to himself. He's just flat like paper. Well, and his ability to reflect on himself or his own actions or his own situations. You know, we always see him in the reflection kind of through somebody else's perspective. So other people are seeing him and seeing his behavior, but he is not perceiving himself. Like we never see him look into a mirror. It's oh, always, true. it's always um, like there's that really great shot in the guy's apartment at the beginning where he's actually off camera. We're seeing his reflection in a, in a wide shot. That's more from an audience perspective in the mirror and he's off camera. And that's the only way we're seeing him. We don't ever see, we see Danny look in mirrors a lot Mm -hmm. because so much of her journey is introspective, you know, is her inner self mixing with her outer self throughout this movie. And he is just like all outer self. Like you wonder, like, does he have an inner self? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. The Danny being introspective and like looking at herself in in the mirror. Yeah, what an insane journey for her to go to Sweden and have all this stuff happen. But also, if you watch it for the first time and you've never seen it before, definitely, I know I'm kind of backtracking, but definitely pay close attention to the painting that they show at the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, it becomes really important. And when we first watched it, it was like, okay, weird painting. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And then you're just kind of like launched into the movie. So you don't really think about it. And then upon, you know, rewatch, you're like, okay, well, this is very clearly, clearly important. Yeah, yeah. Here's Although the it won't make story of the of the movie laid out in a painting. Yeah. Although it won't make much sense because it would be like bear. What? <laughs> yeah. Bears bear, in Sweden. <laughs> bear fire. What? Yeah. No? Are there bears in Sweden? I don't know. Who knows? There was a bear in Sweden. There was there <laughs> at was least a bear. one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So the the portals, doors, windows, mirrors as a tool of introspection. Like, also, it's a clever tool to make it so that you can pan. Um, horizontally like just move the camera horizontally in the spaces that we're in in the movie for the most part and not have to have your characters move in and out of frame because they're already there yeah and you can see them very (laughs) clever right there very clever let's talk about since we're talking about doors and mirrors let's talk about guests and hosts a little bit because that was something i did not notice the first time we watched this but like just completely hit me like a ton of bricks in this rewatch. So, you know, this film takes place in Sweden and I don't know a lot. I only know like the very, very basics of like Nordic mythology. Um, But I know a lot about Greek mythology uh, and Greek, ancient Greek literature. And there's this concept uh, called Xenia. And the whole concept is all about the reciprocal relationship between hosts and guests. And it's a very, very central tenet of ancient literature, ancient myth, ancient drama. Um, so often 
things like curses or bad fate are a result of violating the tenets of Zinnia, either being a bad host or a bad guest. And there's so much of that at play in this film, mostly on the guest end of things, but you see a little bit on the host end of things too. You know, throughout the film, we see the different outsiders, um, they call them the New Bloods, who are being brought into the commune as visitors, witnesses, guests, violate these tenets of like being a good guest or being a guest in a culture that is different than your own. They're able to ask questions and inquire and be curious, but there's a respect there that you see at play between the two parties. And there's, with each person, kind of this moment of violation that results in a bad fate. And I just thought that was such a classic storytelling tenet. Um, like I said, I know I know it very specifically from ancient Greek culture, but I know that concept exists in other folklore and, and myth from various cultures. So I just thought was that was just really, really cool because you could see it at play throughout the film and see the direct result of it every time it was violated. Yeah. And that's something that maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't key on to the first time that you were watching it. You're just kind of like, wow, look at all of the bad things that are happening to these <laughs> yeah. people. But there is definitely a moment in each person who dies journey there after they get to Sweden where they have very clearly either betrayed the trust of this town or village, I guess, or they've done something actively bad, either disrupted a ritual or, you know, what have you. One of the things that we talked about while we were watching it this time It doesn't seem important to a Western, a person who is, you know, was raised in Western culture because our rituals and traditions are not necessarily as rigid as some European traditions, especially those that have been kind of removed from like, I guess, I wouldn't say like uh, metropolitan cities, maybe. I mean, we do have them here, but less so, less strict, less... um, Less intentional, I would say. Less intentional, and the stakes are definitely not as high. Yeah. So we're not talking like, we're going to be killed. It's like, oh, well, that was a, a social moray that you just violated. So now we're going to ostracize you as a person, or you are no longer allowed to participate in this thing. Like being loud in a movie theater. Right. You might get bumped, but you're not going to be murdered for being right, loud in a movie right. theater. Although socially, that's not really something that's very good to do. At least not for me, because if you do that, I'll throw something at you. Um, <laughs> or if you use your phone at the movies. But in this particular instance, it's very clear that it's like high order of respect that is expected to be returned to you. I mean, they are letting you come and stay and eat and observe and participate in something that's very old and tried and true for them. So and ties into, you know, all of their, not just beliefs, but the function of their culture. And like, upon second view of this, like, it's really hard for me to not like get down a total rabbit hole, because like, stuff about, um, how myth and ritual like factor into the functioning of a society is like, that's what I studied in college um, with ancient Greek religious practices. And um, it's fascinating. And, And when you start to look at these different rituals, like they are not like, they're not just like made up weird stuff. Like 
every ritual when you when you really drill into like you know what is what is the action what are the words what's the meaning what's the symbolism there everything has a meaning as it relates to a facet of life in this society so the stakes are actually really high when you think about it in those terms mm-hmm. but I think it's really hard for us to wrap our Western American brains around because we don't live ritualized lives exactly in in the same way that ancient cultures or cultures who are more tied into their past and their and their ritualistic history are like Mm -hmm. we are just so far removed from that as as modern Americans that's where we end up being like the kind of ugly American and air quotes and and the ugly American that we see portrayed by several of the characters in this film. Yeah. And like what you said, the importance of the ritual here. This is not an area where, you know, you could necessarily drive and just like go to the store. This yeah. is still an area where they don't have Walmarts. Like everything is intentional. They have to, they do their ritual to ensure healthy crops because they actually harvest their own crops and they butcher their own meat and they have to cull their own population because. If there get to be too many of them, then how are they going to feed them? How will they clothe and shelter and, you know, nourish the bodies and stuff? So it's all really important to them in keeping a self-sustaining environment. And to somebody outside of that, I think that Ari Aster does a good job of using storytelling to sort of convince you, like, okay, maybe this isn't as weird or as shocking or as disgusting as I thought it could be. Like, talking specifically, I and I can't remember the Swedish term that they used for it, but the um, ritual where the two 72-year-olds jumped off the cliff to kill themselves. Uh, obviously, this is shocking. We're meant to be isolated from these Swedish people because they're only speaking Swedish and we there's no subtitles. But we're meant to be um, isolated because you want to feel like Danny does. Right. You want to feel isolated and, and apart from them. He wants you to feel that way so that you are just as confused. But when you're watching that, you're you're like, wow, this is really disgusting. It's a hard scene to watch. They kind of pull the punch because of the trailer. If you've seen the trailer, it's a little... Um, I digress. Anyways, <laughs> um, they, it's a disturbing scene to watch. But then afterwards, you get this speech where... Because obviously the two British kids who have come here are freaking out, screaming, yelling, disrupting the ritual. And I would say maybe a village elder. I don't know if she's quite made it to the elder status, but she kind of like leads them through several of the rituals. She sort of tries to calm the couple down and say like, they wanted this. This was, we know that this was going to happen this is an honor for them. They've lived out their life cycle. They're dying with with dignity, although maybe not grace. This is what was planned. And I will do this too. And I am, I feel fortunate and lucky that I'm going to perform this thing, which is like, to the Western folks are like, what? Yeah. I mean, we live to be like 82 or whatever. And for them, they're like, no, we're getting ready to have a baby. Like we're going to have a, a mouth to feed, a growing mouth that's going to be needing more nourishment. And these two have hit the point where it's only going to be downhill from here. So it's like by the end of it, you're like, okay, I'm all right. I, I get it. I actually kind of get it. 
The other interesting part about that scene is, so the, the, I'm just going to call her the matriarch because she's kind of in that matriarchal role. Uh, as the matriarch is explaining this, she's explaining it to the two British characters who are guests of uh, Pele's brother. We're getting these shots where she's speaking to them, but really she's speaking directly to Danny and we're getting a lot of Danny's reaction. And the kind of interesting thing when you think about it is Danny is shocked, but also very actively listening and processing this and their deaths are very interestingly juxtaposed to her parents and her sister's death who died in isolation her parents especially in in a manner that was outside of their control in the absence of any community or or family in in any sort of regard yes they all died together but absent of danny certainly Whereas these two individuals are, yes, they die in a very horrific and shocking way, and yet they are surrounded by their entire community. They have been honored. They have been grieved. Um, and and they're able to sort of witness the grieving of their community. Like, you know, people always say, like, you know, don't, um, what was it? I just saw somebody said this online. You know, like, don't wait till somebody's funeral to tell them, you know, what, how much you care about them. Right. Or to tell them what you think about them or to celebrate their life and their contributions. Well, these two individuals got that. They were able to be celebrated by their community before they died. And so Danny is kind of seeing this juxtaposition between these two individuals who died a, a shocking death from her perspective, but also a very kind of supported death. Whereas her parents, her parents especially died seemingly in their sleep, even though it was not, um, you know, it was of her sister's doing, but they, they fell asleep and they didn't wake up in their beds, in their home, what we from a Western perspective would consider a very air quotes, good death. Mm-hmm. And yet it wasn't a good death. Right. So the, the juxtaposition there is just fascinating. This whole movie is kind of this juxtaposition of like, isolation um and and the sort of family and the people we think care about us versus like the care of a community mm-hmm. even though the mechanics of the community care may look very different than what we expect yeah um, like sort of what's the trade-off there right the um one of those things specifically of uh, talking about that same scene one of the things that became apparent to me the second time i was watching danny is panicking at first when she understands what's going to happen because I mean, it's pretty clear, like there's um, some long shots that lead up to it, but it's pretty clear that, you know, that these folks are going to fall off this cliff and they're going to die right in front of them. But after the woman jumps, she looks pretty deliberately right at Danny and she kind of looks like Danny, which I mean, you could take from that what you will, but when she falls, Everybody starts wailing, and Danny wailed when her parents were, were, when she found out that her parents had died, and nobody else grieved like that with her, especially not Christian. So she became silent, and it um, reads like shock. It looks like shock. It looks like she's completely just starstruck at that point. But I think, at least this is my theory, 
is that she's finally getting to see somebody grieve in, in the same way. She's seeing her own grief mirrored in other people and starting to realize, I am not alone. Totally. I, I am not alone in my grieving. I'm not alone in the way that I've grieved. And it's okay to feel it like this. I don't have to pull it back. I don't have to minimize it or make somebody feel comfortable I am allowed to grieve loud and long and continue to grieve. And I should be surrounding myself with people who also can feel that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really that moment in the film is just the start of her realization. And we see throughout the rest of the film, the whole like second half, I would say, of the film, we see more and more examples of that, of like Danny witnessing people coming together in community and having like these big cathartic emotional responses and it being okay. And like everybody's in it together and everyone's supporting each other, often like touching each other, like hands on each other together in a way that we never see in the beginning of the film, you know, not even from the person who is supposed to be like her person, her partner, her boyfriend. Yeah. He's very much, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's very much, like, you know, rubbing her shoulder and stuff, but certainly not connecting with her in any sort of way. Like, I understand your grief, I reflect your grief, I accept your grief, I will grieve with you, you know, that kind of thing. Which Pele does later in the movie, which I think is a... that That's, like, the turning point for me. Like, yeah. the, when I watched that a second time, that scene was so powerful. It had totally flown by me the first time. And... The reason for that is there are many scenes where Danny is silently accepting or silently realizing a thing that is happening to her, Um, like the realization of grief. That is silent. Like I said, it looks like she's shocked, but I think she's processing. And there are many scenes where that happens, where she's just quiet, accepting, staring. And that can kind of seem like, what is she doing? If you're not really, like, clued in or or very close to what's happening, or maybe you're not realizing what's happening as I had the first time. But when you watch it a second time, you're like, wow, these are actually really meaningful moments, and they're saying a lot with nothing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and the flip side of that, you know, one of the criticisms I've seen, one of the sort of surface criticisms, which was actually not my criticism the first time we saw it, I found it fine, even though I didn't fully understand it was the flip side of that, which is all of those moments of wailing. Like, mm-hmm. people who don't like this movie are like, that is over the top, and I don't understand it. And I think that is more a reflection of, like, we as a culture are so not tapped into, like, how to deal with our grief. So, like, seeing these displays of, like, raw grief and emotion on the screen can strike us as being, like, over the top and weird because we don't, we don't see that, like, anywhere in society. I mean, it was the same thing. Hereditary had a moment like that, too. It was more a singular, isolated moment, but people were shocked by it, you know, because a lot of people were saying, I have never seen somebody, uh, it was Tony Collette acting that, like, I've never seen somebody portray grief like that in a film before. And, like, same kind of thing. We don't see people portray it in film. We don't see people portray it in real life often. Yeah. The Western way is quiet, silent, alone. Yeah. <laughs> so Stuff like Duff it down. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to grieve, do it by yourself and don't be loud. Don't yeah. let anybody else know that and, you're doing it. And don't inconvenience anybody else with it. I mean, you know, we live in a country where 
you know, most people for bereavement, like you get like three days. Like, okay. And that's supposed to be enough time to grieve and also take care of the business of dying in America, which is insane. Um, Fortunately, something that they don't have to deal with in, in this area of Sweden. Uh, yeah there's no funeral home (laughs) well and the whole like business of dying again like is the society is built to take care of that Mm -hmm. like and for everyone to have a role in taking care of all of the sort of trappings that go along with death and dying you know it's um gosh not to go off on a total tangent but you know there's this whole trend in america that's starting to emerge i was just listening to another podcast about this about culturally some people wanting to shift back to the home funeral practice Mm -hmm. you know in the practice of having a deceased person's body you know in the home and the family being a part of dressing them and preparing them and all of that and that being um people saying like that's it's really positive but it's um was very much a part of our culture until less than 100 years ago and yet it's seen as so foreign and so strange and like so many of us don't know how to deal with it and are, and are so removed from all of the things that go along with dying that we just like don't know how to handle it. And it disrupts the grieving. Total tangent. But but no. you can see in this society, like all of that is built. It's built in yeah. just to be part of what they do. I mean, to your point, think about all of the things that we worry about as a society when we near death which is not only on a personal level, like getting sick, aging, failing bodies, that kind of thing, dying with dignity, nursing homes, all that, but also, like, what about your family? What about your extended family? What do you worry about making sure that they're taken care of? What about your stuff? Things like your home, your car, all those things. This society has none of those worries. The community takes care of your family. You don't have your things. Everybody shares. Everybody's taken care of because there's no, um, this is your thing and this is my thing. It's everybody's stuff. If you need something, the community provides it to you. So all of those worries and the personal ones of like a failing body and things like that, none of the, not a single one of those things are left unaddressed. And you are returned to the community so that people can still come and visit you um, uh, when they visit the rest of their ancestors, which has happened for a really long time. There's a dead tree that they dump the ashes nearby, which that is Mark's downfall. But yeah, like they've taken care of all of those things because the matriarch says everything's recycled and, and that goes along with people. Yeah. So, well, and to bring it back to the scene we were just talking about within that scene, um, Pele tells Danny, um, and he had mentioned this earlier in the film, like his parents died in a fire, which is interesting because I think I know how they died now. I Um, didn't even connect that until literally like two seconds before you're about to say it. I was like, oh, (laughs) yeah, they were, they were the sacrifice at some point. But, um, yeah, he says, you know, my my parents died when I was very young. And, you know, traditionally, you would think of me as an orphan, but I never thought of myself that way, because the community lifted me up, and they held me and they cared for me. And that's what community does. And he then poses the question to Danny, he's like, you know, has anyone held you in your grief? You know, has anyone made you feel at home? Does Christian make you feel like you're at home? 
And of course, she can't answer that. Yeah. Even as I'm screaming at the screen, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it's a really powerful scene because I think that's really when Pele gets to Danny and she like starts putting the pieces together. Like she has some of the pieces, but she starts actually putting them together like, oh, no, I don't have community. No, I don't have family. I don't have anybody who's held me in my grief. And certainly I don't feel like I'm at home with Christian because he's a terrible piece of crap. So, and Pele kind of, I mean, I guess you can take it as he, is he trying to make a move on her? I don't know. I was about to ask you the same question. I mean, it's possibly, yeah, I I think possibly. And I think maybe you've got a situation where, you know, he's somebody who's been away from his community for a while and and certainly at the beginning and yeah, there are several points throughout where you're led to believe that, yeah, he probably does have a crush on her mm-hmm. and it's certainly, it's certainly convenient that he can also potentially bring her into his community like he's kind of fulfilling two goals at once you know here's this person that he's obviously enamored with and also there's this need to bring someone new into the community and right and she seems worthy and appropriate for both his affection and coming into the community so he's kind of able to do both yeah i don't i don't necessarily think it's in a creepy way i don't I don't read. Did you did you feel like it was creepy or just kind of like, a, oh, I have a crush on this person. Oh, yeah. I also want them to join my community. I didn't think it was creepy, but we kind of talked about this while we were watching the movie. I also don't think that their concept of like relationships and monogamy is at all Western. Right. Yeah. I think that affection is given and received um, communally. Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, there are multiple times where they talk about incest, which is unfortunate. But um, I think that affection, including physical affection, is something that is accepted and given more freely and not in a way like, this is my wife. She is my wife. Right. I think that um and and maybe maybe it's not as serious as all that like maybe they do have monogamous relationships and stuff. But I mean we see multiple times throughout the movie um women sharing affection, men sharing affection that otherwise from a western point of view is inappropriate or maybe like strange or odd to us. So um I do think that he maybe had I mean there's there's that kiss towards the end where I was like that's a bit intimate. It wasn't just the chaste kind of peck on the cheek that other people were giving her. It was like a full-on mouth kiss, and you're like, okay, well, maybe maybe he does have some feelings for her, but I also don't know, because there there's no such thing as property, and I know we both have, like, similar ideas about this, and this is kind of getting off topic, but, like, marriage is about property less right. than... Oh, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I, and I, don't, I it's think... It's a business deal. Yeah, and I don't think that they they don't have, like, marriage necessarily yeah i didn't i didn't it didn't seem that way at all yeah because pele refers to his parents as just his parents but we never really get any other indications that there were monogamous relationships or marriage in any sense of the the word so i just kind of wonder like obviously there's there are you know there's procreation happening but is that more of a necessity 
or is it something that people are enjoying um, just amongst the community? I was actually really interested in that, that aspect of it. You wonder if, you know, two people were to, say, choose to kind of pair off and make a life together within the community. It seems like that would be accepted, but it would also be equally accepted if, you know, like what we in a Western tradition would say, like a polyamorous relationship would be completely accepted in that society too. That was my read on it at least. Yeah, for sure. I think so too. Which is really interesting because it breaks down a lot of the norms that we have in Western culture. And so it could definitely be jarring to watch this movie for the first time through and not kind of keep that in mind. So you're like, wow, this is so weird and so foreign. And it's like, it's it's not really, though. Right. It's right. not really that strange. Like, there are definitely communities in the world that have aspects of this that happen. And it's not strange to them. This is like home. And I mean, honestly, can you think... Think of reasons why having a tight-knit community that has your back and supports you and, like, emotionally gets on your level and, like, you know, cares about you. Why I don't understand why it would be really bad. Unless that community was a bunch of, like, you know, murderers or something. Well, especially in the absence of a charismatic leader. Yeah. And that's the difference, I think, where it's like you know, our sort of modern perception of a cult is a group of people organized around a charismatic leader, whereas the traditional definition is not that at all. There's no singular figure controlling this group. You know, you see certainly the matriarch, you see a couple of patriarchal um, older, like male elders, Mm -hmm. um, but you don't, none of them really emerges as a controlling leader. Mm -hmm. They're more just um, the way a functional matriarch or patriarch of a family would be, you know, a a respected elder who leads the traditions and the rituals, but there's not that element of control. I mean, you also get the sense, aside from the stuff with the outsiders, that the young folks especially are not just free to come and go, but encouraged to go out in Mm -hmm. the world when they talk about the different seasons of life. Um, They say that, Folks that are like 18 to 36 are in, is it the summer? Summer. Yeah, they're in, they're in the summer of their life and they are encouraged to go out in the world and explore and experience. They're expected to then return to the community and work and contribute when they get older. But mm. you don't get the sense that, you know, they would be like hunted down if they right. didn't want to come back. It would just be like, okay, well, you're you're off. We got to get some new folks in. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't seem like they have any trouble with that. Um, <laughs> no. I mean, Pelly came back and his brothers and sisters came back with no issue. So um, it's a very interesting um, community dynamic. It's hard to see through to that when you're like, when you have all these terrible things happening. Yeah. Like, wow, all these people are dying. These people jumped off this cliff. Oh, this is tough. This is tough to to watch. So one of the things I noticed this watch through is that Christian comes to Sweden with his family, um, with his, with the only family that we know him to have, which is his group of friends, his three friends. Danny comes to Sweden with no family. And by the end of it, Christian dies with no family and Danny has a whole family. So kind of an interesting swapsies there, because we don't know anything about Christian. Like, you don't need to know anything about Christian. It kind of doesn't matter. Yes, exactly. 
it doesn't matter at all. Which I, ca- I guess that kind of launched us like kind of far into the thing. But um, yeah, it was just something I was thinking about like in terms of family. Like he came with his community and his community of Western folks all failed him. And Danny gains a new family and they support her and save her and allow her to grieve. And she's grieving for so many things. She's grieving for, you know, obviously her parents, which she hasn't really been able to rightfully do. She's also grieving for her relationship, which is unfortunately very graphically ending. And also kind of the life that she's leaving behind, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, she's simultaneously like regaining her agency. Yes. And we see that like as she, you know, first sort of gets taken in by the women, we see her sort of emerge and flower as this sort of fully formed person who, yeah, is still carrying grief. And I think I think it's kind of the other message of this movie is like, you can still carry your grief, but also like live a fruitful, productive, like happy life in community. We see her emerge more and more. And when she's crowned May Queen, all of a sudden we see her start to reclaim her agency and be like a little confused about it at first. Uh, the scene right after her crowning when she's at dinner, it's super awkward because everyone is looking to her. You're the May Queen. You're the honored guest. We follow your lead. And she kind of doesn't even know how to be in the lead. But she, throughout the ending of the film, regains that in a way that, again, is like kind of really beautiful if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. It's very satisfying in a way that kind of, like, at least I feel like this. When I finish watching the movie, I'm like, I am satisfied, but it's in a way that's so hard to sit with. Yeah. Like, it's hard to feel the feelings when when you finish the movie because you're like, yes, this is satisfying, but how do I accept this? How do I accept that the satisfying aspect of this movie is that a man who, I mean, he didn't murder anybody, he didn't physically abuse anybody, but he dies and it's still satisfying, even though we might not think he deserves to die. But you're like, yeah, no, this is still pretty satisfying, though. Well, right. You know, and that's that's the question of the film, I guess. I was about to say, you know, by any sort of traditional definition, what he did was not that horrific. But but was it? Yeah. yeah. You know, like, it, it, I, that's that's a really good question that this film brings up is like, you know, um, murder, physical abuse, you know, all, all of the kind of things we see as sort of the punishments and and the different sort of air quotes, like really horrific physical actions Mm -hmm. throughout this film are sort of juxtaposed against this emotional abuse Mm -hmm. and which is worse. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That was a criticism that I heard a lot of um, in regards to the death of Christian. So kind of to speed through like the last two thirds of the movie, Christian uh, is, I don't think she's bewitching him per se, but she's he's targeted by one of the women in the village and she's just come of age which is I'm not even going to talk about what age and she wants to get pregnant and she has picked Christian as the person that she wants to get her pregnant so 
throughout the movie, um, we see like these little things, which I think they believe to be spells. I don't know for sure if they are, but like leaving runes under his pillow and um, giving him food that has been imbued with essence of the person. I don't think they are... I don't think they're true magic, but I think they are ritual ritualistic magic mm-hmm. that um god i keep going back to college like i wrote a paper about this in college <laughs> they're ritualistic magic that while not magical in a supernatural sense does have power because of the belief associated with it that, right. that by performing the actions of the ritual and putting the intent toward this action you are putting forth power and displaying intent and all of that. So I think that's what that is. I don't, I don't think there's actually anything supernatural in this film. Yeah. But I I, do think think there's power within all of the ritual. Yeah. And they certainly believe in it. So that, that draws power. And as an outsider, you're like, wait, what, you know, and that also has power in in and of itself, Um, whether or not, you know, exactly what it is, but um, Christian is targeted by this young woman, and eventually, uh, there's some drugs involved, sort of like an ayahuasca tea, but it's more like an elderflower wine. That's yeah. that's the impression that I got from it, but it's like dosed. Um, and they explain it as it reducing your inhibitions, so sort of like alcohol, but like with a kick. Um, <laughs> yeah some sort of hallucinogen and Christian ends up having um, sex in a temple with this, with this young woman. And um, she, with the intent of her getting pregnant and uh, Danny sees what's happening in this particular scene. And that is why she has that scene that everybody's seen in the trailer where she and all of the other May Queens are screaming and wailing together. And it's because they, they follow her and she's trying to get away at first and kind of be by herself. But then they all kind of get into this breathing rhythm together and they're like wailing and chanting at the same time. And it makes her feel better. It's kind of a balm. Well, up until this point, we've seen, especially in the beginning of the movie, when Danny is completely overcome by her grief and it's manifesting physically, she's always, because our culture demands it, removing herself from a group situation and being by herself. You know, she excuses herself and goes into a bathroom. She excuses herself on the plane and goes into the bathroom. Even when they first arrive, She starts to be overcome. She walks off by herself into the woods. And in this case, her instinct is to do the same thing. But the other May Queen's cultural instinct is to be with her and and support her. And rather than allow her to isolate herself, to experience her grief with her. Yeah. And touch her. And like, even through that like channel of just physical touch, You know, you have a a group of women who are touching her and then a group of women who are touching them, touching her. So it's like they're they they want to show their support in a way that it borders on literally physical. So they end up drugging Christian and Danny is allowed to make a choice. They've already got eight sacrifices at that point, several of which are already dead. um, Some of the new blood 
and there are eight sacrifices, and she is allowed to choose the ninth, which I had forgotten. That yeah, I forgot that too. So there's a lottery, and they she has the choice of one of the villagers or Christian, and she picks Christian. So she had the choice of a stranger in a place in a community that heretofore she was not a part of, not accepted into at least until the May Queen scene, or this man that she came to Sweden with that is her boyfriend who has been with her this entire time. And she, she picks him. She freaking picks him. And you're like, good for you. Yeah. (laughs) You're slow clapping, (laughs) you know? It made me think of that gif of Lucille Bluth, which is good for her. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That it's really what it makes, which what that uh, makes you feel is like, and she does seem to be remorseful about the decision and she, Danny's also still kind of, like, messed up on that wine. But she ultimately makes her peace with her decision and I think is happy with it. I think whether or not she's even happy with the decision, it's that there's something even better for her. Yeah. At the end, you know, it's like... It's like whether or not she's necessarily at peace with choosing Christian, she is in a place and with people that are going to allow her to work through that decision and experience all of the feelings Mm -hmm. that are associated with that decision out in the open as she needs to in a supported and safe environment. And that actually supersedes the hesitation around the decision. Yeah. And what better way to get away from bad memories and uh, start anew than to fly halfway around the world and do it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, To go back to one of the things that um, you wanted to talk about, about Christian and divorcing himself, his mind divorcing himself from his body. I wanted to go back to that scene with the um, the elders jumping from yeah. the cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I noticed... Um, and again, didn't didn't really understand, you know, it's really easy to look at this as just like the shock of it. But so when when the elders jump off the cliff and the, the outsiders, the new blood are all sort of going through their various emotions, Christian at first is just kind of blank face shocked. And then after the second person jumps, he throws up. But then like a scene later in the sort of, dormitory bunk area he's talking to josh his friend and he's just like such a typical bro he's just like wow that was that was really wild and and to me it really read as like okay so he threw up so his body knew how to react to the shock and trauma of what he had just experienced but like mentally he can't even go there like he is incapable he has to, for his own safety, just default back to like, wow, bro, that was crazy. I mean, he didn't say bro, but, you know, like, wow, that was that was really crazy. Okay, moving on, yeah. you know. He yeah. can't he can't even engage on that level. And I could go down a whole road about how, you know, not just in the Western world, how we're allowed or not allowed to feel feelings, but men very specifically, like, you know, toxic masculinity is harmful to men in that it really strips men of their 
ability and their freedom to experience real emotions. And I think I think we see that in this character very, very starkly. Yeah. And to kind of touch back on a point that I made earlier about Josh. And so Josh is also going to Sweden. I don't know if I mentioned this because he's doing his thesis on... I don't know if he uses cults. He, I think it's just midsummer rituals. Yeah, midsummer rituals in in various European countries. So that scene that Juliet's talking about, where Christian's like, "Wow, that was really weird." In the very next breath, he, I think, is punishing Josh for his insightfulness earlier in the film by saying, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna co-opt your uh, your thesis." So um, yeah, let's just share it. And Josh is like. I've literally been working on this for months and months and you've been sitting on your thesis decision for a year and you're going to co-opt my stuff. And I've already like, this has already worked out. And he's like, well, I'm just going to do it here. You're going on to like England and Germany after this. So it's not really a big deal. And it totally, totally is a big deal. Yeah. But, But then Christian just afterwards just motors right on to asking questions, crazy questions about incest to the... Um, to the elders of this of this town, and it's like, how tone deaf could you possibly be? Yeah, I, I, I also I thought the dynamic there was really interesting. This might have just been a case of the casting, but I found it so fascinating that you had Josh as a black man getting his thesis just completely co opted by a white man. Yeah, like. Again, maybe that was not intentional in the scripting and that just manifested in the casting, but it was really hard not to see it that way, especially too. Yeah. Um, not only co-opted by somebody, but somebody who is far less... Um, far less competent. Yeah, far less competent, hasn't been spending all this time on there. And earlier in the movie, you get the sense that he's been putting it off and yeah. kind of... Um, Danny was, was saying, like, encouraging him that he should go to Sweden because it could give him inspiration to figure out what his thesis was going to be. And then it did give him inspiration to co-opt his friend, air quotes, friend's, um, work. So you get the sense certainly that Josh has been doing the work and like, just as you said, like Josh is just asking better, more insightful questions when he's talking to the elders using the time that was granted to ask the questions he needs to for his ritual. Like, he's using the time well. He's asking, you know, good and appropriate and thoughtful questions. And Christian is just kind of like scratching the surface in a really self-serving way. Yeah. Josh is always taking notes, his little notebook. Um, Okay. So a question that you asked me while we were watching the movie and I didn't have a good answer for I'm going to ask you. Okay. Do you think it's a patriarchal or a matriarchal society? Um, yeah, good good question. Um, certainly we see um a matriarch as a leader most of the time. We certainly see some men in roles of like respected elders. So I don't know if it is a straight up matriarchy, but certainly matriarchs are highly, highly respected mm-hmm. in a way that certainly seems a little different than in Western society. It did seem like, although this society seems pretty progressive in terms of like relationships and things like that, it did seem like there were still pretty 
traditional gender roles, like in terms of we see the matriarch leading not just rituals, but sort of taking the lead in conversations about reproduction and sex and things like that. Whereas the men are typically taking the roles more in terms of study and ritual, um, the butchering of animals and things like that. So I don't know if there's parity and equality there, or if one is, we certainly see the woman more consistently in mm-hmm. authority, but it's it's kind of hard to tell, yeah. ultimately. It is because Danny is female, and she is our main character, so we're following her, and we're seeing her kind of folded into this community more so than it would be if it were a man. Um, because I, I could kind of see both of those things. Like men are, are definitely more into the, um, like into the, like scribing of the, um, their ritual and the evolving kind of theology of this community. And the, the matriarch is kind of like the MC. So we see her a lot. We, the, she's yeah. the MC of the May Queen ceremonies that are happening. Um, so we see her a lot. And we also see them leading feasts and things like that, or the Maypole dance. So it would be easy to say that it's a matriarchy, but it's hard. It's really hard to tell one way or the other, I think. Yeah, especially too, because we're only seeing one season's worth of ritual. Like it, it might be... Um, you know, certainly in other cultures too, you know, spring summer rituals are more associated with kind of the divine feminine, whereas fall winter rituals are typically more associated with like the divine masculine, like the hunter gatherer provider, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's extra hard to tell because it could just be in the context of this ritual we see the women more at the forefront. Yeah. Okay, so about music. We were talking about music at the beginning of the movie when we started watching. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about the music cue that happens at the end of the movie while the temple is burning down. Just uh-huh. specifically. I mean, the music in this movie is insane. Yeah. Just I, in general. I love the score. Bobby Croak did the score. It's phenomenal. He also performs as, I believe it's Haxon Coat. Um, but he's billed for this one just as Bobby Croak. Okay. So... Um, lots of instrumental, lots of, um, I don't want to say rudimentary instruments, but more, um, like percussion instruments and more, uh, I don't even want to say tribal because I think that that's a terrible word to use here, but more, um, oh, I don't even know a good word. Well, we have no brass. Um, yeah. so we have more folk instruments. We folk would say traditional folk instruments. Yes. So percussive things, um, handcrafted strings um any sort of woodwinds are obviously handcrafted like flutes and whistles things that could be carved or whittled Mm -hmm. so nothing like forged or manufactured like a brass or any kind of metallic instrument it's almost always things that would be made from like wood or skins or strings yeah um lots of singing Mm -hmm. we we have lots of singing. singing in this movie yeah and it's very um, stripped down and bare, and you can tell that this is more of a choral type, you know, yeah. arrangement in terms of singing. And th- I would I would say that these ladies are probably not, like, traditionally trained, at least not all of them. So you get a very raw, like, um, folk-like experience. Like, you know, if you were to go to, say, 
You could get something similar in terms of singing if you were to go to like a folk revival Mm -hmm. in the South, um, in the American South. So I was really interested and I always, I don't know if it's just me, maybe it's just me, but I always think that those types of, um, hearing those types of like really stripped down songs and uh, musical cues really kind of hit me in the chest and feel more intense um, and, and I think that this one, it, this movie did a great job of doing that exact thing, but the, the music cue that happens during the end temple burning is like, I, I mean, we're seeing people in excruciating pain and agony, literally on fire and this whole temple burning down, but the music cue is like triumphant. Yeah. It's this beautiful triumphant string piece it's interesting because so often the strings are just slightly discordant, mm-hmm. which is which is fabulous because it gives you that sense of unease right. without being over. But yeah, it's like this beautiful juxtaposition. You've got this temple burning, this man in this bear suit screaming, and then you've got this beautiful like swelling gorgeous violin and string piece. Yeah, it's like um watching the end of Sound of Music. Yeah. The Sound <laughs> yeah. of Music like everything is great and everything is fine. And this music is, uh, like indicating to us that this is a, a peaceful and justified ending to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, at least that's how I felt. I was like, this is, this seems purposeful. Oh, absolutely. To do it like yeah. this. Um, the other thing I think is Danny finally smiles when she turns around and she's watching the temple, finally fall down it's like burning it's it's almost completely burnt down and she starts to smile where she's been crying and weeping and now she's finally smiling and i'm sure everybody's seen that photo of her with tears running down her face but she's smiling she's got the may queen crown on i thought that maybe like the temple finally burning down is sort of like her being able to not um end her grief but a physical manifestation of her being able to say, I have finished the grieving journey. I will not, I will, I won't ever forget my parents or my sister, but I've processed and now I'm here. And sort of like being able to do that with her community and like burning all of that crap back in America down. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of what I thought. It was like, eh, she's smiling because everything is burnt. Like it's all it's all ash. Now she can start fresh here. Yeah, I didn't necessarily. It's interesting. I took it as a slightly different thing, mm-hmm. which is that that is the scene where we see all of the people in the community. At the height of their grief. Mm -hmm. We see them grieve collectively a couple of different times through the movie, but this is the most extreme. And if you look at the different individuals and the way that that's manifesting, you see different kind of different ways it was manifesting for Danny Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. And I took it more as like, you know, ah, I've finally sort of found my people. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, not necessarily like her grieving journey was over, but like that she's found safety, like to continue that journey. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think that there's one. No, I don't think there's one right answer. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's why it's so hard to talk about this movie in a way that like 
it makes it's easier to talk about a movie that's like a slasher. It's really easy to talk about. Yeah, a movie Black like Christmas that. was a lot. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm like, oh, I made notes, and then I'm like, all oh, this stuff is gonna sound like garbage. Because <laughs> this movie is a movie where everything is subjective, and nothing is. I mean, just like you cannot objectively say one way or the other anything about this movie, and that's why. The first time I watched it, when I came out of there, I was like, this was not a good movie. And maybe other people will also have that same experience where the first time they watch it, they're like, I cannot connect or relate to this movie at all. Give it another try. At least one more try. Now, knowing now what you didn't know then. And see if it lands a little bit better the second time. What did you think? This is your second watch through. How do you feel after watching it a second time? Oh, I like it a thousand times better. I mean... You know, part of my thing was just never being able to engage with it the first time around after the beginning. Like, I was so just, like, in the, the shock and trauma of the beginning that I I couldn't catch up in enough time. Like, by the time I was kind of clear-headed enough to catch up, I had missed a lot of the nuance and then was just kind of like, what's happening? I don't know what's happening. Whatever. Okay, it's pretty. You know, like, that's that's kind of where I landed the first time around. The second time, there's just so much, there's so much I'm seeing that's exciting to me. Like I keep, you know, I didn't intend to talk this much about like ritual and things like that, but like I got really excited about (laughs) it this time. And like, that's kind of the stuff I geek out about. Yeah. I also think that it is really valuable to watch this again now after we have all experienced and continue to experience a collective trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, that is the pandemic. I think that for so many of us, it's perhaps easier to not connect or to separate yourself from the sort of grief that's portrayed in this movie, because depending on what kind of experiences you've had in your life, it's, I think it's sometimes easy to feel like, it's not like you maybe haven't been through enough or you haven't been through similar enough to find it applicable, but like the entire world has been actively going through it for three years and we're all like processing and like trying to figure out like how to process our grief. So Mm -hmm. I feel like this is actually a really um, appropriate time to watch this movie and to maybe take some lessons from like, oh yeah, like maybe being in community around our grief especially with a collective trauma is, you know, maybe there's something we can learn from this too. Yeah, definitely. That's a really powerful message. I I didn't even think about being able to connect it to my own life, but yeah, being able to um, really do anything with community seems, (laughs) considering we've been in isolation for so long, it seems so much more important. So that's certainly one thing to take from this movie that maybe we would not have been able to connect with back then. Totally. And like full disclosure, I'm also working on another project that's all about grief. So like, um, yeah, I'm working on another audio project that's, uh, you know, very seriously exploring grief. So like thinking about this stuff has been on my mind anyway. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm just more keyed into it right now. But I do think like this is a really appropriate time to watch this movie again. Yeah. And uh, Florence Pugh is um, she's doing big stuff. She's she in all kinds of yeah. all kinds of movies, and this was really like the the first time I ever saw her. So 
Um, some definite star power there. And I'll I'll be perfectly honest. The first time I watched this, I was like, she cries too much. Oh, my goodness. And now I'm like, her parents freaking died. Why Why would you be so callous to an actress yeah. who's portraying somebody who's been in, uh, who's, like, right in the throes of really terrible, um, jaw-dropping, like, shocking grief. And now I'm like, wow, I was really mean the first time I watched this. I don't know why I would be so harsh to somebody who's, you know, processing through their emotions. But if you go into it not knowing that this is about, uh, like, what it ends up being about and getting kind of thrown off guard initially, it would be hard for you to feel anything because you shut yourself down. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, the trailer made you think, like, this is a movie about a cult. Exactly. You know, like, oh, I'm going to go see a scary movie about a cult. Oh, no, I'm going to go see a scary movie about emotionally abusive relationships and grief. Yeah. Like, that's that's a whole different thing. Yes, very, very much so. Uh, another perfect example of the trailer betraying the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, like, who would have gone to see a movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, other than, like, us. Yeah. You know, who would have gotten really excited about, okay, like, it's a horror movie, but it's about toxic masculinity, emotional manipulation, and, like, processing grief. Like, you and I would have been like, yeah, let's go. But, like... <laughs> You're like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I bought the tickets. Let's do it. <laughs> but the rest of the world, I don't know. It's so. much easier to market a movie saying, this is a horror movie about a cult, but all of the stuff is going to happen in the sunshine. Yeah. Than it is to say all of the words you just said about this actual movie. <laughs> it really is. It's yeah. easier to market it. Like, wow, cults are crazy. These kids go and do drugs. Yeah. And there's a cult. Yeah. And it's like, that is not even it. Like, yeah. the cult is not the scary part. Not at all. They do some scary stuff, but that's not the scary part. Yeah, I promise. The, yeah. <laughs> As we said at the top, the real horror. Yes. Seriously, bad, bad boyfriends. boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have any final thoughts about this movie? Or is your brain wrung dry? <laughs> I think my brain is wrung pretty dry. Um, next time around, we're going to get back to basics with zombies. <gasps> yes. So exciting. I'm so excited about zombies. Can we just only... No, we can't make only zombies on this podcast. No, we can't do only zombies, but we can do some zombies. Yes. And uh, I have never seen this next movie, so you're going to be getting raw, uncut, (laughs) first watch. And I've seen this movie like a bajillion times and have gone to cast reunions and everything else, so this is going to be real fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to... It's going to be so much more fun and so much less dark than this episode. But you gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad. We you had, do. we had the antlers episode. We got Black Christmas. We got this one. We got the next one. So, just hang on. It's not all depressing. <laughs> only sometimes. <laughs> yes, only sometimes. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Bye.